CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara community through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2020 and 2021 to keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400, and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my co-host, Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Sports Plus. How are the uh, subscriptions going uh, over there at Bronstein Sports Plus since your, since your rebrand? Flatlining. Um, it's similar to my Threads account that gets about one new follower every 16 or 17 days, but continual growth, and we'll see how this thing develops in a... Uh, a spring season. Hope spring's eternal. Sustained growth, uh, s- slow but sustained. Uh, lest anyone think that there really is a Bronstein Sports Plus and they go looking for it, but um, just trust the process, Jonah. Uh, a lot of processes being tested. The process is being tested at One Bills Drive. The Sabers are testing their process. The University at Buffalo is going to have a new process uh, after it is uh, abruptly stripped of its head coach, Mo Linguist leaving the program to go become an assistant with Alabama, forcing uh, UB to have a search that they didn't uh, think that they were going to have. But I think there are a lot of people who follow the UB Bulls and are happy with it because Mo Linguist just seemed like the kind of guy who People were done with, but he was under contract. And eh, what are you going to do? Well, Mo Linguist, maybe did you be a favor? At least that's what uh, some uh, some skeptics uh, of UB's program uh, have thought. But uh, and we'll get to that. Uh, Jonah Bronstein uh, covered the uh, introductory press conference uh, for Pete Lembo earlier this week, and he's been covering that story uh, throughout the search. And uh, and again, I keep using the word abrupt because people didn't see it coming. Uh, Mo Linguist uh, bolting the program uh, long after uh, most of the coaching uh, cycle had been exhausted. Uh, the Bills had their post-mortem news conferences on Wednesday, or was it Tuesday? Tuesday. Does it matter? Locker cleanout Monday. Yeah, locker cleanout was Monday. Uh, Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott spoke on Tuesday. Um, I was surprised by this, but uh, my brothers and sisters in the media at the news conference were wondering, I think, before Sean McDermott came out, if there was a chance that there was going to be uh, an announcement made about Sean McDermott's future. And I, I granted, I, I wrote the story that there was going to be 0% chance that Terry Pugula was going to fire Sean McDermott back when the team was, I don't know if that was at the 5-5 five and five or the 6-6 six and six juncture, but um, when things were looking the bleakest and fans were, um, if not lighting their torches, they were at least going to Home Depot and Lowe's to pick them up uh, to storm One Bill's Drive uh, and uh, ask for Sean McDermott's head uh, right around, you know, I guess that was mid-November when there were 12 men on the field when the Broncos missed their their first attempt at the field goal. And then of course made their second and, um, but with this way, the season ended the bills winning six in a row before getting bounced from the playoffs by the Kansas city chiefs at home. There's obvious disappointment uh, that the bills were able to fight back, uh, get that second seed, have home field through the playoffs with the exception of if they were to play Baltimore um, and to not be able to close out the Kansas City Chiefs, of course, people are upset. I just thought it was interesting that there were a lot of people were giving it credence that uh, that we might be seeing some sort of joint news conference with Sean McDermott and, and Brandon Bean sitting side by side and, and Brandon Bean, I guess, thanking Sean for his time. I don't know. Um, the real anyways. people expected that or you're just talking about the 
the Twitter chatter that that. Well, no, I, I don't think hope for something like that. Yeah, I, you weren't there, so I guess I need to probably give a little more color as to the. No, there was just some chatter. Yeah, and then Sean McDermott's news conference started a little bit late. I don't know, fifteen minutes or so late. It was supposed to start at eleven, started at about eleven fifteen, and I think that there were there was some chatter in the in the news conference about are we sure uh, Sean staying. Uh, you know, that type of stuff. I, I, I just found it interesting. I don't, it wasn't overt. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, people were, you know, on the phone with their, with their editors, you know, saying, yeah, Sean's out here, you know, you know, like you used to get uh, back in the day before everything was streamed or, or live tweeted, you'd be on the phone at the start of a news conference and you'd say, yeah, we're getting started. No, McDermott's here. McDermott's here. Yeah. He's uh, look, he's, 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 uh, he's wearing Bill's gear. Uh, he's still here. He's still with him. Um, it wasn't quite like that, but it was on people's minds. So, um, anyways, I know a lot of fans are disappointed with the concept of Sean McDermott coming back for 2024. Um, I happen to be, uh, neutral on Sean McDermott. I think, uh, you know, if you were to try to pin me down one way or the other, I, th I, I lean towards Sean McDermott. He was my vote for coach of the year. Uh, in 2022, just one season ago, he got my Pro Football Writers Association vote for Coach of the Year uh, because of everything that uh, the Bills dealt with from within the community, with the weather, with DeMar Hamlin. I mean, there are just so many things. And I thought that the Bills really had an impressive season. I've said it on this podcast. I've written it at The Athletic. I think that in years, we're going to look back on 2022 as one of the special and most amazing seasons in Bill's history. And I know they didn't get to the Super Bowl. I know they didn't even get to the AFC Championship game that season. But what they dealt with, um, the exhaustion, uh, they were already dealing with a lot before DeMar Hamlin dropped dead uh, and needed to be revived in Cincinnati. And then just the, uh, you know, they, they were just whipped. They, they were drained. They were... Uh, they were on fumes. I've used, I, I use that phrase a lot. They were on fumes by the time Cincinnati came to Orchard Park and won that game. Um, and I don't think that Sean McDermott had any major collapse this year. Yes, going to six and six was stunning and unacceptable, especially in the ways that they did it with losses to the Jets and the Patriots and the Broncos in particular. But I think Sean McDermott redeemed himself down the home stretch. And if the bills were to fire Sean McDermott, I would not be writing columns that this is dumb and, you know, they're going to regret this by the same token. You didn't see me writing any columns that it's time for a change. And this just isn't working anymore. Cause I still think it is working. And uh, anyway, I'll, that's a, that's, that's my, my entree into this conversation, Jonah, where do you stand on uh, Sean McDermott returning to the bills in 2024? Yeah, I think it's farcical, maybe, to think that they would have fired Sean McDermott, that the Bills would have fired Sean McDermott after, you know, they won an average of 12 games the last four years, division championships, haven't won in the divisional playoffs in the last few years, but still one of the top four, five, six teams in the NFL year after year, consistent success. And they just gave him a large contract extension before last season. And those two factors, along with the the way you know his leadership is intertwined and in some ways codependent with Brandon Bean, I don't really see a scenario anytime soon. Things could happen in the future that would change this, but in the current dynamic where Brandon Bean, the general manager, fires Sean McDermott in order to get Bill Belichick or Jim Harbaugh, one of these free agent coaches that that other people seem to really want. I could see at some point in should time. should be noted that if there were to be a firing of Sean McDermott, it would not be Brandon Bean. It would be Terry Pagula based on the structure of the front office. Each individually reports to Terry Pagula. So yeah, I'm sure Brandon Bean would have some say in it and whoever gets in Terry's ear, which is something that has happened over the course of Terry Pagula uh, as an owner. He has a tendency to maybe lean on somebody a little too much, and that has led to certain decisions. Uh, but I think it's about as equitable as it can get to having two different leaders report to the owner. It seems as though Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott are 
uh, the scales are are quite balanced there. Anyway, continue. I, I'm sorry to derail you there. Yeah, well, that was actually pretty much what I was just going to say. That, yeah, so maybe Brandon Bean doesn't even have the authority to fire Sean McDermott, but a scenario where Brandon Bean is still the general manager and Sean McDermott is not the head coach, I could not see that happening after this season or a season like this season at this point in time. And if even if it were to result in that, Sean McDermott has had the kind of success and in some ways the kind of reputation. He's a coach that you trade away for draft picks or you get compensation from another team in making that move. He's not somebody that you fire on Black Monday the day after the season ends to you know make a point and to you know change the direction of the franchise. The only thing, if there needs to be a change in direction, if you are of the mind that the Bills have gotten as far as they can get and need new leadership and regime change, then that would be, I think, a situation where the owner gets rid of the general manager and the head coach and starts over. And I don't think anything, any results that the Bills have had in, in the past four or five seasons would put ownership into that mindset and want to do that now. I think you'd be reluctant to do that even after a losing season. And it would have to be a losing season or multiple losing seasons, I think, before you start changing you know, the office nameplates and the masthead if you will, at one bill's drive. However, what if, I, what if they hadn't? So my sources uh, told, I had four sources uh, telling me that uh, two of them said exactly, there is 0% chance uh, that uh, McDermott would be fired. And this is when the bills were six and six. Uh, and then two other sources said they would be stunned. Uh, so that's four sources in various ways, but two of them, very good sources said 0% chance um, what about not making the playoffs this year with the expectations, not being able to keep up with the dolphins, because that would have been the case had the bills missed out on the playoffs, the dolphins would have ruled the, the AFC East. Would that have put enough pressure or given Terry Pagula the idea that it's time for a change? It'd be a you lot think, more I guess with but... the way I'm asking it is, did he need that hot streak down the stretch to save his job? Perhaps, and the hot streak down the stretch, you know, I don't think you can ignore that. I think that if you're having any conversations about Fire and Sean McDermott, I mean, they won seven of the last nine games after changing the offensive coordinator and kind of having their reckoning at five and five. Because when they were six and six, it was after they played pretty well in that Philadelphia game. They did lose it, but five and five was really the point of the season where it looked like, wow this season's going in the wrong direction, and then they turned it around. So not, not to say you should get a contract extension, but that was the kind of finish that gives you confidence in the coach and confidence in the direction of the team. If they had missed the playoffs, especially if it wasn't, if they had lost more games, it, you know, if they lost that Miami game on a kick at the end and just happened to miss out but made that rally, that would have been different. But if they're a losing team and they miss the playoffs, if, they're, if they miss the playoffs next year, uh, yeah, that that's – where I was going. I do think they've set a standard now where they have to be at least this good every year. And there's a segment of the fan base that is very frustrated and angst filled about not getting better. And it's not progressing. And you were in the AFC championship game in 2020 and you actually have gotten worse. because you haven't gotten back to there, but once they're no longer a super bowl contending team and they're not at least getting to this point and being within a late field goal or a few bounces of the ball from advancing and being in the super bowl, then you do have to question whether something needs to be changed just for the sake of change. And that's what I don't know the answer to, but I do kind of know the question. I think at some point, if this team doesn't break through to the Super Bowl, you have to figure out where the stagnancy is rooted and what needs to be changed. And I don't know if that's the coach, and I don't know if it's the general manager and the roster construction. Uh, you know, Maybe it's ownership. Maybe it's the stadium. It, it could be any type of thing. It, it's probably not the quarterback, but with a lot of teams – in these type of ruts, sometimes it is the quarterback. Sometimes you have to give up on the Aaron Rodgers era in Green Bay to move on and, you know, kind of forge ahead to your future. The Bills aren't there yet with Josh Allen, but maybe if they lose in the divisional playoffs three, four, five more times. And Josh Allen, as great as he is, every year that he's been in the playoffs in his career, has lost against, I would say, a better quarterback on that day and in that season at that point in time. So he's very, very good. MVP finalist, but I don't think he has broken through to be the great quarterback that beats the other great quarterback and goes on to win it all. Not yet. Taking a step back uh, is an interesting 
um, an interesting uh, situation to to ponder because there are all kinds of ways that you can take a step back. You know, there were years that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick missed the playoffs. It happened. Uh, always on a tiebreaker, but they they missed out on the playoffs here and there. Um, most notably in 2008 when Matt Castle was the quarterback. I mean, Josh Allen could suffer a nasty injury that maybe doesn't even knock him out for the season, but knocks him out for six games, and it's enough to derail your season. So I think there are ways you can take a step back and be able to justify hey it was just too much to overcome um that was almost where they were looking at this year with all the defensive injuries that they had and i think that all those mounting defensive injuries in particular uh i thought it was interesting um and i'm not this isn't a criticism it's an observation of how calm sean mcdermott was in his post-game news conference on sunday after the game now, granted, he takes forever to get into that room, and maybe he punched five holes in the in the drywall, and uh, you know, uh, and uh, curled up in a fetal position and, and cried in the trainer's room. I don't know, but by the time he was in the news conference, there was kind of a matter of factness about that game. And look, it. As someone who's been around professional sports for 30 years, and I think you see it a lot in the hockey playoffs too, um, especially when a team just doesn't have it. You know, a team gets finally bounced after six games, and maybe they were able to win one or two by fluke. And sometimes you just don't have it. And some you just know you're overmatched. And it's kind of like, a, eh, uh, it's just, and I think that the Bills were kind of in that place uh, heading into the game against Kansas City. Not that they were, you know, they they were giving up at all, but I think that they were able to look at their effort afterwards, obviously upset at how close they came and didn't didn't finish it off. But with Terrell Bernard and Khalil, when, when Khalil Shakir left the game, I I turned to Joe Biscali and Matthew Fairburn. Um and said, this game's over because Khalil Shakir had meant that much to the offense. And I don't think I would have said the same had Stefan Diggs left the game in a similar way that Shakir did. Now Shakir comes back into the game. Okay. And then when Bass goes out there to kick the 44 yard field goal, that would have tied the game. I said it, I thought it again, this game's over because he had been squirrely. Uh, he'd had bad misses. He had a holder with a bad hamstring. And whether that's supposed to affect the way you hold a football, Sam Martin's uh, had a bad game and the weather's not great. And at 44 yards, it just was not, to me, it just didn't feel like it was going to happen. And so, you know, that's a lot of words there for me to say that I think that the Bills were able to quickly say, we didn't have it. And uh, maybe that's not... Uh, and, and I don't think there's any crime in, in self-awareness uh, is, is what I'm saying there. And so, and I don't really know what my point was other than it was an observation that I think that the, the bills knew that it was going to be a, a, probably a minor miracle to win that game. And then they still had to go to Baltimore a week later and play a team that a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of football people who I really trust, um, who are telling me that they are going to have to shoot themselves in the foot to not win the Super Bowl, that Baltimore is playing better than anybody else in the NFL right now, and to just get used to it. Yeah, there was, I would say, an erroneous line of thinking. I heard it on the radio driving in that the winner of the Bills, Chiefs game, specifically if it was the Bills, that once the Bills beat the Chiefs in the playoffs and gotten past that, nemesis that there was no stopping them it didn't matter if they had to go on the road at baltimore uh that this was the true afc championship game and the bills even though this was a home game and that was a road game get through this one and there was no no way any team could beat them beyond that i did not agree with that at all i thought the bills were would have been worse for the wear coming out of this kansas city game and had an even tougher time going turning around and playing another road game even without some of the weather challenges that had faced them the last two weeks but I'm interested in your characterization of Sean McDermott post game because 
I wasn't there. I did catch a bit of it on TV to note how you say how it takes so long. We did the whole Kansas City Chiefs post game man locker room, walked up to the steps, got up to the press box, uh, you know, brewed a pot of coffee and saw Sean McDermott coming on the screen about at that point in time. So I did see a little bit of it, but I read the transcript and I didn't hear him or get a real sense of his demeanor and body language the way that you did, because I was across the hall listening to Andy Reid. And in that visiting media room, and the reason I bring that up is because Andy Reid, who is one of Sean McDermott's mentors and friends and is going to praise the opposing team and the opposing coach probably after almost all of the playoff wins, but he put some extra sauce on it. He made it very clear. He said specifically this season, he mentioned Sean McDermott being a coach of the year candidate caliber job that he has done. And there was a vein of that from Patrick Mahomes talking about Josh Allen and the Bills. Travis Kelsey, if you heard the audio of what he said to Josh Allen at the postgame handshake, he said more of it on his podcast this past week. The Chiefs were very impressed with the Bills because of the defensive injuries. Josh Allen playing with a hurt shoulder for much of the season and toughing it out and willing them into the playoffs and them getting the home field advantage. I think Kansas City was more impressed with the Bills. Like, wow, you really beat us here in the regular season game of seeding and you beat us in that game in Kansas city. Uh, And that this game was as close as it was. I mean, it could have been, if not for that fumble in the goal line, not down to the wire, but I think Kansas city felt this Buffalo team as they have before took us to the brink in ways that very few other teams can. And Kansas city feels like they're, they are the super bowl champions. I think they feel like they're the best team in the NFL when they're playing well. But I think they also feel like the Buffalo Bills are their biggest postseason rival and hardest team to beat. It, it is interesting that every Kansas City has lost after beating the Bills twice now before in the playoffs, and I think they might lose to Baltimore again. So the Bills have yet to lose to the Super Bowl champion in these playoffs. But it does feel that way. It does feel like the Chiefs are the best team in the NFL and the Bills are you know, the team that maybe can beat everybody else. The Chiefs maybe not the best team. team in the NFL right now. But still, the team to beat. Like you don't get yeah. to the Super Bowl without beating. You, you know, you and obviously there is a way for San Francisco to do that. They don't have to go through Kansas City because they're going to win their tournament in the NFC. But yeah, if you want to come out of the AFC and win the win the Super Bowl, you got to go through Kansas City. I don't feel that way about Baltimore. Baltimore is the best team right now in this in 2023, but Kansas City has has established itself as that team. They're, they are what the Patriots were five or six years ago. Yeah, and specifically Patrick Mahomes, compare him to Tom Brady, they've established themselves as the team that the Bills have to beat. That if the Bills were to somehow win a Super Bowl in a year where maybe Patrick Mahomes is hurt or Kansas City misses the playoffs, it would still count, but it, it wouldn't feel the same. The Bills have to go through Kansas City now to get to the Super Bowl and win a championship, and if they don't do that, there'll be a bit something missing from this journey, from this story that they've put together over the last four years. Yeah, I don't think that you can look at Sunday's game and see a gaffe. Obviously, Tyler Bass missed the field goal. Uh, And again, that would have tied the game. It would not have won the game. I still think that Kansas City, with how much time was left, a little less than a minute and 50 seconds, I think it was, I think Kansas City still has better than a 50% chance of winning that game because even if it gets to overtime, it's 50-50, right? Before the coin is flipped, it's 50-50, um, and the rules are such that both teams get a shot. But with the extra minute and a half, Kansas City still has a shot to win the game in regulation. Their kicker's really good. Harrison Butker could have very easily, quite plausibly, Uh, won that game. So Tyler Bass is miss and it's unfortunate. Uh, You hear these things uh, haven't been able to verify death threats. A lot of things have been said about death threats. Uh, I've had discussions with, uh, with people. There's a reason the athletic has not done a story about it is because we haven't really been able to verify. Yes. Some very awful things have been said to Tyler Bass on social media. So he locked down his accounts uh, and there is concern and NFL security and the bills have their people. And if the police need to get involved, they will. But, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of assholes out there. Even if you consider yourself a bills fan, that doesn't absolve you from being an asshole sometimes. Um, but Tyler Bass, the, the game was not on Tyler Bass. The game was not on 
Josh Allen. The game was not on Sean McDermott. I should say the loss, not the game. I mean, it's, I get the, the donkey in this game. If there is one is, you know, you look at Steph Diggs in that, in him dropping the long bomb that was thrown right to him. Uh, and if that play were in isolation, you think, well, geez, you know, that just happens, uh, you know, star player or not, you know, that, that, that happens, but he'd had such a turbulent second half of the season. Um, you know, it was just, uh, it was just one more bad play. I think that a lot of the goodwill, uh, that he's built up with bills fans is, is, uh, dwindling. Uh, I don't think that they have, uh, and they're, it'll be interesting to see, um, as time goes on, if he remains a member of the bills uh, heading into next season and the amount of money that he's making. And if he is just a pretty good NFL wide receiver and not a superstar, if, uh, if fans have, uh, have the kind of patience with Stefan Diggs that they've had in, in recent years, uh, if they are going to ignore when his brother wants to take shots at the team or take shots at Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs doesn't have anything to say about it. Um, you know, those, those types of things. I think he's, uh, I think that when you're not putting up all pro numbers, uh, you have a tendency to wear out your welcome among the fan base uh, a lot more differently and a lot more quickly uh, than you do when you are proving that you're worth uh, whatever trouble you may be or whatever, um, whatever drama may follow. Um, but even that the bills had a chance to drive down the field uh, that drop did not happen so late in the game that they didn't have a chance to recover. Uh, the fake punt, I mean, that looked like it was going to be, you know, a goat horns play, uh, Sean McDermott, uh, but I, I don't disagree with it. It was aggressive. People want Sean McDermott to be aggressive. He was aggressive. The play didn't work. You can talk about that, but Jordan Poyer bailed him out at the goal line. So it didn't cost him the game. Anyways, I, I just, it was a game unlike 13 seconds or um, others where you look and say, man, this is inexcusable. It was just that the, the bills played a pretty good game. They were thin on defense against a hall of fame coach with a hall of fame quarterback and a hall of fame tight end, and probably some hall of famers on elsewhere on the roster. And this was a, they they couldn't get it done. And rock and roll Hall of Famers in the suites. Perhaps. She will be a rock and roll Hall of Famer only because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame puts people in there for uh for for PR purposes more than they do for uh, whether or not they deserve it. Um I was talking about Bill Zelvis. No. <laughs> um we had a discussion. Um, you were a little further, you're a little further down in the press box. I would like to have gotten your thoughts on it. Matthew Fairburn and, and Elena Getzenberg and uh, Matt Perino. We were trying to come up with who the most, if she's the most famous person in the world, which I disagree with, but who the most famous person ever to have attended a bills game. Oh, I had several conversations with people about this during the week. Cause I wanted to maybe. And at the time story. At yeah, the time. I, I didn't get a satisfactory answer to really, really answer this question here or to pursue it as a story. But I was asking around and it was believed that there was really nobody of this magnitude that's came to the game as a fan of a visiting team. There have been some celebrities that the Bills have invited, but nothing of nobody on Taylor Swift's level to be on the field and be part of the game. And then you're talking Super Bowls and visiting games in Los Angeles. or Well, I was wondering if Don, if Donald Trump had ever attended a game because of his relationship with I Jim am. Kelly. Well, of course, Donald Trump then is a lot different than Donald Trump now. Yeah, and I don't think, that's I was asking about that, I don't think he has or was noted to have you know been seen, spotted by the fans, made aware that this was the game that Donald Trump attended. And Donald Trump, being a very famous person, has had – ups and downs with his fame. If Donald Trump in 1997 was watching that game because he's friends with Doug Flutie, yeah, that's not the same thing. There's what about Drake? Coming. You think Drake has been to a Bills game? You know, I don't think so, but I also, and he'd probably drop this in a song lyric someday, maybe he went to the game as an eight-year-old because he lived 
close by and used to come shopping at the Galleria Mall. Maybe he has been to a Bills game. But does that count, or do you have to do you have to be famous at the time you're you're at the game? Does it have is or yeah, no, can it, it be? It doesn't count because you have to be. Uh, you know, Jack Kemp count because he's a U.S. senator. O.J. Simpson. Well, O.J. Simpson, I would argue, might be more famous than Taylor Swift at various points in his life. And I think is a suitable answer. And I also think the shock factor and just the awe factor of O.J. Simpson being in the stands when he was for the first time in a long time a few years ago. But O.J. Simpson played for the Bills. And I think that's a different category when much of your fame is derived from being a football player and now you're attending a football game or if you're a broadcast, I mean, I can't think of the right example, but as Monday night football had a celebrity guest to do something on the field for entertainment factor that was there. I mean, I don't think this has happened either, but has there been a musical performance at halftime that was somewhat of that magnitude? I can't think of one, but I think it's maybe possible that or a national anthem. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I don't remember, and I do think, because I had a discussion with somebody about this being the Bills, biggest Bills game of all time, or the biggest Bills home game in 10, 20, 30 years, and I didn't really think it was until I got there Sunday and kind of recognized this Taylor Swift effect and how much hype was built into her arrival in Buffalo on a plane and arrival at the stadium and what she was doing, and there was a magnetism to that corner of the stadium, Jason Kelsey contributing this as well, and it really did... F- feel like to me like the bills not that they didn't deserve to win the game but for the storytelling and atmosphere of that game that this was a chiefs game that this was a taylor swift travis setting that record they made themselves at home didn't they yes and jason kelsey even took his shirt off which you do in your living room right i mean jason kelsey made it his place and he was so charming and charismatic that bills fans were like hey man do what you gotta do I think there were a lot of people heading into the game talking about, uh, you know, putting bands on Taylor Swift music on the radio, or this is a Taylor free zone. And I, I don't know if that's remnants of the John Bon Jovi discussion that you have to hate somebody if they're first, you know, of course, John Bon Jovi, the, the thought there was that he was going to take the team away and put it in Toronto. But um, is yeah, bon there's Jovi this... more famous than Taylor Swift. No, I don't think so. Um, that's another one. So most famous person on the planet, that's a different discussion. And we came up with and Matthew Fairburn pushed back on this. And I was a little surprised. I said, Paul McCartney, I mean, he's a beetle, but Matthew's pushback on that was not as relevant as Taylor Swift is today. True. But my point being is that Paul McCartney has generations of fans that have built up. Um, Oprah, I came up with, I thought was a good answer. Mike Tyson, of course, you know, the, I said that, you know, the Pope is a default answer, but the Pope, I think it, uh, somebody had the point. I don't know if it was Perino or Fairburn is that you change out the Pope. It's just the Pope, like not this Pope. Uh, so that was a little bit of a different answer, but we can't, we couldn't get beyond Donald Trump. I don't think there's anybody. Donald Trump is actually the one person because of his popularity with half of the country. And I think this extends into some other countries that watch our politics for entertainment is, I think, the only one that's close. I think OJ has lost a little bit of relevance, maybe because he's so accessible on Twitter these days, but it's not as uh, notable to hear him speak or to see his face. Um, He did have a fun appearance on the Cameron and Mace podcast, but that aside, you know, Taylor Swift was on Time Magazine as the person of the year. Well, yeah. Well, and, oh, that's a great point. I forgot about that. That's Donald actually Trump a... has never had that, right? Huh? Isn't that the thing with Donald Trump? He's never been that. So he gets <laughs> well, the yeah. magazine it's kind of yeah. It's kind of that's the kick in the balls for him. Uh, he, except for the he's made a he's made some Time covers and put himself on it. Um, and even the level of infamy that I think helps Donald Trump and OJ Simpson and is not the case with Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, except for this vein of Travis Kelsey being a spokesperson for vaccination and the anti-vax movement has made Travis Kelsey a, an evil person in that way. And that's just led to more eyeballs and media coverage and attention. Travis Kelsey is becoming one of the biggest stars in America 
through the Taylor Swift Association and some of these other things and his podcast. And he already was famous enough to host Saturday Night Live last season. So, right. I mean, he was on his way before he even met Taylor. Well, I don't know when they met, but before he started dating Taylor Swift, he was already uh, a pretty big, and he did a great job, by the way, on SNL. Um, the the sketch where it was um, the, uh, it was a, a place where kids would, you'd normally be for little kids to go and take their American girl doll and have like a tea party and you have lunch with your American girl doll. And he, he was there. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll tell you real quick. Uh, you know, I don't, as many of us, we don't really get starstruck by the athletes when we see them. Um, I think maybe you would have been if you bumped into Taylor Swift at the game, although channel four photographer, Scott Swenson walked by her in Kansas city and didn't recognize her and didn't even know who he was walking by. You see him in the background of that video. But I think to make that point, Travis Kelsey left the locker room uh, after the game and didn't speak to media. He did. I think he did something on the field, but he didn't do his post game media, which sometimes happens often happens with Stefan Diggs and some players on the bills. And I wasn't there for that. I got in the locker room and said, Kelsey left on the way up the steps. The way we go, you kind of walk through that elevator where the players go back and forth. And I did pass him in the stairwell and he gave me kind of a, you know, how you doing, sir? Uh, well, I forget to say, excuse me, sir, you know, a smile and a wink. And it was like, it was different. It wasn't like walking by a player in the locker room because you kind of knew, hey, he just went and said goodbye to Taylor Swift and he's off to do. Did you, know, you get a little tingly? Play. No, no, no. But you kind of, it. no, no, no. It wasn't that, but it felt like a different aura. It felt like a star in passing behind the scenes at the stadium and not a football player moving to get on the bus. He probably was going to leave on a different plane than the team. I would imagine maybe, maybe not. Um, it just felt like a different magnitude of, uh, you know, celebrity and person interaction than you normally get. If I, I've walked by all sorts of bills, Demar Hamlin's a player you kind of, uh, that I've seen different times through there. I don't, I don't know. I think that you don't see all of the players. So it seems to be sometimes it's, it's, they're moving guys around or moving players, families around through that stairwell, through that elevator. Right. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's uh, there. There was a police escort for Taylor Swift, and I'm guessing Jason Kelsey was probably in there, and Mama Kelsey, and whoever um, Patrick Mahomes' wife, and they got a. I don't. Uh, I don't think Jim Kelly gets a police escort when he's coming to the game, or uh, or Steve Tasker or Thurman Thomas. Are uh, you aware of any any of these players? from all the history of the Bills, ever having a famous girlfriend, maybe not even Taylor Swift's level, but somebody who was, uh, you know, would have been a famous celebrity. I mean, Rachel Bush is the closest I Haley, can think of. Well, Haley Steinfeld. Well, okay, correct. But we don't see her. And she's but that's current. Um, good question. Has there been a Haley Steinfeld situation in the past before? I don't think there has. Ahmad Rashad, did he have <laughs> Well, when, when he was playing here, was he, I mean, that was before he was with Felicia Ayers, um, Felicia Ayers, Allen, Claire Huxtable. Um, I don't know. I mean, nothing comes to mind, but I mean, football players are, were still big stars and the, the bills have had an NFL team for a long time. Somebody getting traded here or. We know what happened with Mario Williams. I'm thinking of the big stars that have come through and uh, maybe had Re a Reggie Bush. He wasn't dating a Kardashian when he played here. Mm, that, that I don't think doesn't he was. ring a bell. He was, but doesn't ring a bell. Um, let's talk about the Sabers. Um, speaking of coaches and whether or not they should keep their jobs, uh, Don Granato. That's oh Tom Galasano's uh, wife, Monica Sellis. There you go. Um. Your thoughts on the Sabres uh, West Coast trip. Uh, they drop uh, the first game to Anaheim. Look like they're going to drop the second game uh, quite readily to the L.A. Kings and then come back uh, pretty aggressively and beat the Kings uh, in L.A. Next, they'll have uh, San Jose uh, over the weekend before returning home. Um you know, this team is, you used the word stagnant earlier. This is about as stagnant as it gets. Uh, it is hard to cover this team because there are no trends. When it comes to hockey in 82 games, you cover the trends. 
um, streak, winning streak, losing streak, uh, power plays hot. Um, the, the penalty kills cold, this goalie, that goal, everything is so back and forth and one game at a time. You can't sink your teeth into anything about this team. They're boring. They're not very good. Uh, and Don, Don Granado is the eighth longest tenured coach in the NHL. And all the seven ahead of him uh, have had a degree of success. Three of them have won Stanley Cups. Uh, another one of them is Lindy Ruff, the NHL's winningest all-time coach without a Stanley Cup. Uh, guys that go to the playoffs. Don, and then there's Don Granado with look what looks like, relatively speaking, pretty good job security. He's in the top third of the NHL. No, the top quarter, right? Eight. There's 32 teams. So he's in the top quarter of job security in the national hockey league with nothing to show for it and nothing to show for it again this season. Um, I, I know that a change for change sake sometimes needs to happen. Uh, I, I don't I don't usually agree with that approach, but uh, I just see a team that is learning how to not win. Uh, they don't seem to be, picking things up. They don't seem to be evolving or developing. They just seem to be treading water. And if you're a Buffalo sports fan that says losing in the divisional round of the playoffs in, uh, you know, and falling two games shy of the Super Bowl is treading water, then what are the Sabres doing? They're barely, they're, they're treading, but with their, no, the only part of their body sticking up out of the waters, their, their nostrils. Well, Your thoughts. Well, so the Sabres won last night, and I think they have a good chance to win their next game in San Jose and going to the All Star break, having won, you know, two in a row. And I'm counting here seven of their past twelve. So not a great record, but winning more than losing over the past twelve games, and on a two game winning streak, coming back from the West Coast trip, going in the All Star break. Um, Respecting everything that you said, I don't think that's a case where you're firing the coach because the team is mired in losing and they're getting used to losing and they're developing losing habits. They seem to have habits of inconsistency and maybe I think sometimes not having their confidence to play their best game every night and to assert their will on the other team and being the youngest team in the NHL. And if they're not the smallest team, they're a smaller team and a, a team that, you know, lacks physicality in some ways and their ability to be hard to play against and make the other team play their game. They, they kind of are victim to what the other team wants them to do too often. However, if they, you know, if they lose the San Jose game, maybe all bets are off because that's losing to a bad team that they've done that a few too many times this year. And those are the nights when it starts to look like, wow, what's wrong with this team and the way they are prepared for games and first periods and things like that. But I don't think you're firing the coach because they have been losing in the short term and you expect a new coach to come in and get the team to win in the short term and get back in the playoff race and make a, an immediate change. You can make an argument that it's not working, that this team is not developing into a playoff caliber team or a team that can win in the playoffs and that it might need a new style and a new structure and a new system and a new direction to get to that next level going beyond this season, but I think that's an off-season conversation, an end-of-the-season evaluation and conversation to have. And I think of what Sean McDermott said about Joe Brady coming in, and even with Joe Brady doing a good job of reviving the offense and changing the offense, he noticed how you can't come in mid-season as the offensive coordinator and implement a new offense and do everything that you want to do. You have no, to but that pieces. isn't that a good reminder? And again, football and hockey are two different sports, but change for change's sake made a big difference there. And... It did. Yeah, absolutely. So that's an, an argument for that. But what I'm saying is if the Sabres need a new style of play, a new structure, a new direction, you don't get that from a midseason coaching change. You're not going to get that from bringing Seth Effort up from Rochester. You get that from a new coach and a new start in the offseason. I think that might also involve management in, in discussions there. And I think that's a bigger conversation and a bigger look at the franchise than just firing Don Granado, putting in the best coach you can find in off the street. Because what's probably going to happen, even if it does shake things up 
a little bit, they're not going to win enough games to make the playoffs. So you're still going to be a team that lost games and missed the playoffs and maybe has a below 500 record. You're in the same spot you would have been. I don't, I don't think that change for the change sake is going to make enough of a change to justify doing it right now. Let me give a quick rundown of the coaches that have longer tenure with their current teams than Don Granado. And I'm going to go in reverse order. So Don Granado, Don Granado is eighth. Um, and then seventh is Lindy Ruff, whose career record is 834, 652, 78. Of course, he does not have a cup. He's the all-time winningest NHL coach without one. Then you have Sheldon Keefe, who has a point percentage uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs of 678. Then it's Todd McClellan. Then it's Rod Brindamore, who has a points percentage of 661. And then numbers three, two, and one all have Stanley Cups. Jared Bednar, Mike Sullivan, John Cooper. Those are the coaches ahead of Don Granado when it comes to job security. And uh, I don't think I need to say that one of these things are not like the others. Sure. I mean, I think you could, if, if Don Granado were to get fired, there's an on paper justification for it with where the record is and where the expectations were going into the season. And there's a, you know, the, uh, in hockey, this happens often. Other teams with better records have made coaching changes. Uh, you even see it in other sports where the, the writing is on the wall and you see the, that this individual is not going to be the coach for a long time, but Milwaukee Bucks. To see, Milwaukee Bucks, sure. You'd have to see more evidence that the players have tuned him out and are no longer playing for Don Granado, no longer are trying to play the way Don Granado wants them to play. And I don't see that. Even when they lose, the the rhetoric coming out of the locker room is the same as what you hear from Don Granado. It does seem like they're all on the same page for how they want to play. I think it's it's baked into the roster construction and how Kevin Adams wants them to play, how the players see themselves and how they want to play. There was a bit of a blip midseason where, you know, when the fans were starting to chant fire Granado and then the Sabres came back. and Or Dylan Cousins said what he did and was slapped back down by Kevin Adams. So maybe that's why nobody wants to speak their sure. truth. Right. But after the game, when they gave up nine goals, and then after the game they scored the next nine goals. The talk, Alex Tuck mentioned in the locker room that they had had some internal back and forth about the way they were playing and that, uh, trying to be better on defense and more responsible and more defensive hockey got them out of their attacking style and their pace and their aggression and their shot mentality, and that's what they needed to do. Those are the things that Don Granado says. So they're in concert with uh, the players seem to be playing for Don Granado and want to play for Don Granado and want to play this style and this system. So I don't really see the scenario where a new coach comes in and changes the way the team plays right away and shakes up the locker room, I think it could go the other direction. I think the players could turn, turn tune out a new coach, an interim coach, uh, depending on who it is. And Kevin Adams, it's only a difference of a season, but he's been the general manager longer than Don Granado's been the coach. He made the decision to fire Ralph Kruger, give Don Granado the interim tag, and then keep Don Granado, not do uh, a more extensive coaching search and find somebody else at that point in time. Kevin Adams, the right person to hire the next coach. Does Kevin Adams really know who the next coach should be? How long is his short list of potential candidates? Or is there a different way the Sabres organization should approach going forward and deciding who should be the coach, who should be the general manager? How is this team built? Because uh, I think the Sabres are losing because they're too young and the makeup of the roster doesn't lend itself maybe to playing winning hockey in all the ways and all the facets and all the zones uh, on the ice and that their star players are not having star seasons. Some of them, Paige Thompson, especially on the power play. And even at five on five has been a lot worse than he was last year. Rasmus Dahlin is an all-star and scoring more goals, but he's getting less assists. He's less effective on the power play. His plus minus is the worst on the team. They're not getting the next level of play from these players who were stars last year that they need to make that jump into um, into being a playoff contender. And their best players aren't leading the younger players in the way that they're going to need if this team's ever going to break through and be a Stanley Cup contending team. Well, maybe uh, the delicacy of needing to get rid of a coach 
uh, and uh, contracts and extensions and all these things that are in play. Maybe the Sabres just need a stroke of luck like the University at Buffalo had, or at least a lot of people think, and just have Don Granato up and leave uh, because um, I think that there is some excitement. I don't think there was a ton of heartbreak over Mo Linguist leaving for uh, an assistant coaching job at Alabama. It makes sense. It doesn't make the school look bad because it's Alabama, even though he's taking a lesser role uh, to leave the university at Buffalo. And the school is able to move on from a coach that really hadn't been very successful, had been quite disappointing. He was known as a big time recruiter, didn't really get a lot of recruits. Of course, the landscape has changed dramatically in, in all of college sports when it comes to recruiting. Um, and now here they have uh, Pete Lembo, the special teams coordinator at South Carolina and the former head coach uh, at Ball State. And it seems, well, this is just me. It's, it's interesting again. I'm now interested to see what's going to happen with UB football when, again, use, oh, I'll use the word, it had gotten stagnant. So uh, you've been covering this, Jonah. I am kind of, I'm going off of your coverage. So I might as well just let you give your thoughts on Pete Lembo and where we are with that. No, I think you make a good point that many agree with, that this was in some way a win for UB. I think it was a big win for athletic director Mark Allnut because whether you thought that Mo Linguist should be fired or they needed a change in head coach, that was a very difficult move for Mark Allnut to make. That was his marquee hire. It had only been three years. Uh, they seemed rather married together. I feel like I've used this analogy with Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott and Kevin Adams and Don Granado. And I think that was the case here with Mark Alna and Mo Linguist and the contract, the money they would still have to pay him over the last, I think, three seasons if they did it now or two seasons if they did it a year from now while paying a buyout to um, Jim Weitzel, the basketball coach. That would have been a difficult move for UB to make and a difficult pill for Mark Alna to swallow and make it look like he made the wrong hire in the first place. Now, it doesn't look like Mo Linguist was the wrong hire. As you mentioned, it does even though it's a defensive coordinator, co-defensive coordinator position, it seems like a bit of a step up, if not a lateral move, that you can still say, you know, Kent State's coordinator, Sean Lewis, did the same thing a year before. This is a trend of MAC coaches or group of five coaches maybe moving on to defensive coordinator, coordinator positions elsewhere in college football. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt now. It doesn't hurt it. In fact, you can, like I said, you can justify it. And in fact, you can spin it as a positive right now. And then in two or three years... This is the type of track like you're getting at um, where Mo Linguist might be the head coach of Auburn or whatever. And then you really take a look and say, see, you can come to UB right. and, you know, it, it becomes a little bit of a, a selling point for the job. Right. And as it relates to UB and Mark Allnut, if he fires Mo Linguist and they lose a lot of players in the transfer portal and they lose a recruiting class, um, and it doesn't work out or, you know, it, it looks like years later, like that wasn't the right move. You know, you set yourself up for that kind of criticism. Bowling was leaving, even if the same number of players leave and the same negative roster implications happen from this coaching change. It's not UB's fault. It's Bowling was left and left us in this bad position. It, it buys. I had this conversation with Mark all that after the press conference, how it also resets the expectations because there was a lot of pressure to compete for a MAC championship and go to a bowl game and get it right next year or they probably would have had to make a decision on Moling with his future and the future of the program. Now, you know, Pete Lembo has a one, two, probably a three-year runway, which is Moling was had three years and had one winning season within that. And it takes pressure to win off and it changes. You're seeing this with the basketball team, but Jim Weitzel got fired from finishing two games under 500. The new coach is two and 16, but he's not going to get fired no matter how many games under 500 it is. So it, <laughs> resets and recalibrates expectations that UB is going to get perhaps depending on how this gets negotiated, but in the contract, they can get $750,000 in buyout money uh, from Mo Linguist leaving. And that's good for the bottom line and, and a lot better than paying Mo Linguist to, to not coach the team a year from now. So it is in, in some ways on the margins, a, a good situation wins for university of Buffalo. I don't know. I do like, I was impressed with his, affable demeanor and Pete Lembo, some of the things he said and interacting with the media and the fans and how much he seems to want to be here and 
the mentions he made to Jim McNally and Lance Leipold and, and things like that. Um, but the roster is pretty depleted. They have no quarterback. Uh, they lost a lot of their best players to the transfer portal and don't have obvious replacements on the roster and are late in the recruiting game to find those transfers and replacements right away. I think he's going to coach up this team and they might have better results with worse talent next year than they had this past year. But I also think it's going to be a while. It's going to be several recruiting classes and, and it's going to take time before Buffalo is anywhere close to where they were under Lance Leipold and they might not get there. It's going to take recruiting wins and recruiting success and keeping players out of the transfer portal. Uh, it, every year it's becoming more and more difficult for teams at that level to do that. So while I, I like the hire and I'm optimistic about the potential, I do have some questions about the ceiling. And it's just different than what they thought they were getting with Mo Linguist, who was supposed to be and was an excellent recruiter. And he was getting highly rated recruiting classes and talented players that it maybe wouldn't have come to Buffalo in years past. And that was supposed to lead to just being too good, too good to lose and too good to fail. And Mo Linguist would win MAC championships and move on to the next job, but it would make UB an even more attractive and good job for the next coach. And you're not getting that now. Mo Linguist was able to get Khalil Mack and some of the more re recent alumni to reconnect with the program. Khalil Mack came to the spring game last year. I don't think you're going to see things like that quite anymore. You might get Jerry Philbin and, and some older alumni back at the game, but it's a different vibe and it's a different character and direction of the program, which might be better. A lot of people weren't happy with Mo Linguist and his way he interacted with local high school coaches and the, the community at large, even though he was, I think, involved with the fans and, and a community person um, as a recruiter and as a football coach. He wasn't, he had worn out his welcome in some ways uh, with Western New York. And I think Pete Lembo. In what ways? Will not do that. What ways? If you you can... know, I, I, is there something I didn't hear in his first two years and I heard nonstop this past year that uh, I think it was recruiting related that he had sort of him and his staff, had maybe not they they weren't recruiting local players as much and they maybe weren't playing the local players that they had recruited as much or as quickly as before and some of the local high school coaches and local recruiting runner liaison types trainers had were out on him i think i think there was also the sense remember he his name got floated for cincinnati like right after they had won the bowl game last year right. and there was some talk i think there was a belief that Molingus wasn't going to be here very long, that he wasn't really interested in recruiting the local players. You know, there's local players. I, don't, I was going to say the name, but maybe I won't say the name. There's local players that I've seen, you know, their coaches talk about how Molingus left, but they were still coming to UB, that it wasn't necessarily a commitment to the coach and the coaching staff. It was a commitment to the school and some assistants that stayed. Um, and I thought that was telling a little bit in that oftentimes – recruiting is about the coach and that players are always kind of committing to the coach. And when Nate Oates left, all the recruits decommitted from UB following him. Brian Hodgson had something to do with that as well, but I haven't seen as much of that yet in a, it's a long way to make a point. It just seemed like Mo Linguist was the bell of the ball at UB and local coaching with the fans for a year or two. And then that that stopped happening this year. And yeah, they, they lost games. They went three and nine. But it was more than that. It was it was an off the field vibe that seemed to change in the local football community as it relates to Molinguist. And I didn't catch on to that till late season. But there was a lot of people. I never thought UB was going to fire him after this season, or that they and they went three and nine. But I thought they'd really have to like lose all the games for that to be a conversation. But there were local high school coaches that thought, yeah, it's time. You know, they they were ready for him to move on, and they felt like UB should make that same decision. And I think a lot of those coaches are pleased with the Pete Lambo hire. I think they like the rapport they're able to get with him. His experience, uh, you know, he's from Staten Island. He started coaching at Albany. He's from the Northeast. He's coached in the Northeast. He's coached in the FCS and Division II level. But he's also been at the higher level. So he knows exactly – and he's coaching the Met. He knows exactly where UB is positioned in the college football landscape and the recruiting landscape and the importance of recruiting in your own backyard and east of Buffalo into New York State and in the rest of the Northeast. And I don't think he's going to alienate local coaches and local recruiting in the same way that Mo Linguist's constantly turning over staff, too. I think that was part of the deal, too, that some players were being recruited by 
coordinators and assistant coaches that didn't last from year one to year three. And that changed some of the relationship building uh, and relationship crumbling that I think occurred over the last year. It'll be interesting uh, circle of life uh, type situation if Lance Leipold ends up at Michigan. I don't think that's going to happen because Sharon Moore, who uh, was the fill-in coach when John Harbaugh was uh, suspended and in and out of the uh, the headset for Michigan. Uh, he's got to be the next coach, right? But Lance Leipold, his name's being uh, bandied about for the Michigan opening. It would be interesting if uh, he ended up there after his securitous route. Mo Linguist coming from Michigan to replace Lance Leipold. And I don't know, just a thought. No, it, I don't would, know. it would be interesting. And, and you mentioned at the top, you said nobody saw this coming with Mo Linguist. And I'm not going to pretend like I saw it coming and I, I didn't hear anything uh, of the sort. And even talking to Mark Allnut, he said that came together pretty quickly and it was a matter of hours on the day it happened between, you know, he thinks when Alabama made contact with Mo Linguist and he talked to UB and decisions were made and uh, the story leaked out on Twitter. However, it's easy to say now, I wish, I wish I had said this on the podcast because I did have this thought in the past. I thought this was how it was going to end with Mo Linguist eventually, whether it was this offseason next offseason, at the end of next season, that he would be able to move on to a coordinator position or an NFL assistant position, because he did have a year with the Cowboys before, and get out of UB without being fired, and that that would be a win for UB because of the buyout implications with that, and it also would help Mo Linguist on his resume and his climb in coaching, and that if it came to that point, that before, sort of like I break up with you before you break up with me, I thought it was going to play out that way with Mo Linguist. And I think you're going to see that more and more with coaches. Uh, you know, I don't expect, I'm not saying this because I think it's going to happen, but I think Greg Paulus is the type of coach where it could happen, where he's a, a name coach that, you know, he's, he seems to like the job at Niagara, but I think he has higher aspirations to move on eventually. And maybe that moving on is to be a Duke assistant or an assistant at one of, uh, an Alabama caliber, uh, Alabama's in that conversation now with basketball, but one of the top five basketball blue blood programs being a lead assistant there might be a better job than being a head coach at Niagara. And that's not something in football or basketball that you saw five or 10 years ago. You didn't see head coaches in mid-major leagues leaving for assistant jobs at bigger colleges, but because of the money at play, uh, the reorganization of conferences, and I think the way NIL has changed recruiting, um, I think that being a lead assistant at Alabama, being a defensive coordinator or something like that, has become a better job than being a head coach at the mid-major level. And you're going to see more and more uh, successful mid-major head coaches making that move. Um, and don't be surprised when you, when you see that happen more and more at, at the level that Western New York teams play at. That was about 30 nonstop minutes of Jonah Bronstein on UB football. And yeah. it's impressive. I think there's still more ground to cover, but uh, I guess we'll have to see what happens with this first recruiting class. Uh, we'll save college basketball for another, uh, for another episode. Um, yep. We're still far away from Mark. We got February. We got, a, we got a ways to go. We got a ways to go. Uh, Jonah. Thanks for this. Thanks to everybody out there for listening slash watching Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. Please like subscribe, comment, whatever it is you need to do to show us that you're out there listening and uh, helping out the TGAF channel, the TGAF community, um, getting more and more comments uh, through social media uh, and this uh, through the podcast, as opposed to just people, uh, directly uh, to me at, on Twitter or whatever. But uh, so that's pretty cool. We're growing and uh, much love. Talk to you soon uh, on the next episode of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. 
call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions.